press the recording in progress there. I guess we just started recording now. Anyway, um, uh, bearing in mind that, um, you know, Putin's been in power for 21, 22 years, um, he and the people around him are very much shaped by this whole uh, memories of the Cold War, the antagonism with the United States, the, the kind of memories of things that they have lost, as well as, you know, this personal history and uh, tied in uh, with um, uh, Ukraine. And I think there's also something about him on this 30th anniversary wanting a redo, but seeing, like you've said here, uh, the a redo, what I mean is by, you know, a new settlement to the Cold War recognition of uh, Ukraine and Russia's sphere of influence. But I think there's also this idea that the United States is particularly weak at this moment, as you're suggesting. There's so many rifts of us with our allies, uh, not just because of uh, the sort of shambolic way in which we uh, came out of uh, Afghanistan, but there are um, uh, frictions, you know, with the um, UK and France right now uh, over Brexit. Uh, NATO is looking, you know, somewhat weak, although actually I think that, you know, what Russia's done now is, is really kind of tends to infuse it with unity. The spats within the European Union, you know, we saw Poland on the outs with the European Union. And he's also managed to assert himself and assert Russia's authority in the other former Soviet states. In uh, the Caucasus, in Central Asia, we saw the recent um, intervention in Kazakhstan, which we could talk about more. Uh, Belarus, you know, where uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the very long serving president of uh, Belarus, has now gone back into uh, the Russian camp. And Ukraine remains the outlier. And as you suggested, it looked like President Zelensky of Ukraine was going off in a different direction. There are two other dates that I think are worth bearing in mind. One is our midterms in 2022. And it's not necessarily that uh, Putin's trying to do in Biden or the Democratic Party, but Putin knows that we will get distracted by the time that comes along. He wants our undivided attention to try to press his case right now for Ukraine in Russia's orbit, a new European security arrangement, and also, if he can, somewhat of a withdrawal from the, of the United States uh, from Europe. The other thing is 2024, which is not just our presidential election, but theoretically, and you know, in, in practice as well, is the time that he has to submit himself for re-election, uh, at least to you know go into the next phase of his presidency. And I think he wants to get all of this out of the way before then, because his popularity has been lagging at home. Uh, and he needs to mobilize the population behind a kind of a threat, maybe perhaps behind you know, this ongoing confrontation and a war. Uh, because the last time his uh, popularity was lagging, he invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea and had a huge boost in his popularity ratings. I'm not so sure that that will work quite so well this time around, but there's also some kind of idea that that might also be factoring into his thinking. So there's a lot of different things. I haven't mentioned all of them, but I think, you know, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of different things that are, are going into his calculations right now. So today the US and NATO separately responded to, in writing to Putin's current demands and a Russian parliamentary member said, quote, now our hands are untied and we can do as we want. Wendy Sherman said that she sees today, she sees every indication that Putin is going to use military force sometime soon between now and the middle of February. President Biden said he has to do something. So you know this man's mind better than any of us on this call. Will he or won't he? Well, he'll definitely do something. <laughs> There's most definitely he'll do something. 
And what, the, what he has signaled, and many Russian officials have signaled, is something that they've called rather vaguely and also ominously a military technical response. They keep saying that they're not going to invade Ukraine, and, you know, probably it's all a game of semantics here. Uh, we'll recall that President Biden... Uh, one of his recent press conferences was sort of musing on these issues and talking about that idea that he got a lot of pushback over of kind of a minor incursion. Putin knows that he will get different sorts of reactions depending on what he does. And I think, you know, he's, he's given himself a wide range of things that he can do. He has certainly amassed enough forces and, you know, set up, uh, you know, enough um, uh, contingencies to do a full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, maybe even to take uh, Kiev or you know some uh, further amounts of territory in some fashion. He could use um, heavy artillery. He could use tanks. He could use aviation. Uh, there are some amphibious landing uh, vessels being sent from the Baltic to the Black Sea. He could use subversion as he did in um, Crimea. He's laid it all out there, you know, so that we can see that he has a lot of different options. And of course, he can do other things as well. We've got just recently the announcement by the UK government. Uh, that they had got um, intelligence uh, suggesting that um, indeed the Russians were gunning for Zelensky himself and wanted to make sure that the, the, they could actually install a you know, more pliable you know, puppet leader in uh, Ukraine. Um, I think you know, that is a, another uh, approach that Putin can, uh, can take. They've done that before. And of course, they would all say, well, that's what you do, the United States. You're in the process of regime change. So I'm sure that you know, he would justify that in uh, some way. Uh, they have a pretext, different pretexts in which they can go in. And you know, he doesn't have to say it's an invasion. He can say that this is a humanitarian operation to protect Russians. Because one of the things that they have done in the Donbass region uh, in the east of uh, Ukraine is that they've given out Russian passports to what were formerly Ukrainian citizens. The Russian government themselves are admitted to 100,000 uh, people being given Russian passports. We think there are many more. And uh, we've seen the Russians uh, threaten intervention and do it um, previously under the guise of protecting their compatriots, uh, Russian citizens who found themselves in harm's way or Russian peacekeepers, for example. That was one of the pretexts for going into Georgia, which they didn't say was, a, of course, an invasion, but was an intervention to protect Russian forces who had been shot on by um, the Georgians who were, in fact, responding to shelling coming at them from um, South Ossetia. And then there's all kinds of things that he can do that might be unexpected. He might act somewhere else and to ramp up the pressure. I mean, the, the main point is that he wants to basically get something out of this. He's got maximal demands, Ukraine in their orbit. He wants to have a pliant government in Ukraine, uh, NATO and uh, an, uh, an agreement from NATO that Ukraine will never be a member and the other former Soviet states won't be. And also, you know, some effort to push the United States back. What he's um, trying to do is push us as far as possible to get to the negotiating table. And I suppose what's happened today, I mean, obviously I haven't seen the contents of the letter uh, that was sent um, to the Russian government. I presume that they will probably, you know, publish them if they haven't already while we've been speaking, uh, using that as, again, justification for the next steps, because we were trying to set a floor to these, this, you know, incredibly high ceiling of maximal demands. I'm basically saying, you know, I'm presuming here, based on, you know, my own interactions with people behind the scenes, is that we were kind of basically saying, look, these things are not permissible. We weren't going to go line through line to the points that they had sent uh, to us, but just to basically say, look, we're not going to negotiate away Ukraine. You know, we're not going to, under this kind of duress, make commitments on, you know, behalf of NATO, for example. But, you know, we are in a dynamic now. It is definitely escalatory. 
and Putin will do something. Because the other thing is that Putin's not a person who bluffs. And for everybody who says, well, you know, rationally, you know, he wouldn't do this, he wouldn't do that. That's our rationale, why we wouldn't do something. Putin, you know, thinks on his own terms, his security and Russia's security are uppermost. He's sort of tying these two things together himself and the state. And he is somebody who is pretty ruthless and he doesn't have the same kind of sets of risk calculations that we have. He is indeed very cautious. And if he can get something, you know, for the least cost, he certainly will. But he's made it crystal clear that um, he has uh, very serious ambitions toward Ukraine and more broadly, and he wants to go out and get them. One just very quick thing for us also to bear in mind, Mary, again, like I said, he's been in power for 21, 22 years. We've had five different presidents. We've cycled through multiple administrations and each administration has done something different. And I think Putin's just decided, right, here and now, I'm going to deal with Joe Biden and I want to have this resolved. It's like showdown at the OK Corral or something. Well, after 22 years, it's very tempting to get drunk on your own whiskey. Exactly. And I think there's no doubt but that he could have some initial success militarily, despite the javelins and other equipment that, that we're airlifting and our approval for the Baltic states to transfer to the Ukraine, a lot of the US equipment that they have. But it's gonna be very hard for him to hold that country because even as recently as 2014, since then, I think the Ukrainian people have had a taste of democracy and are moving toward farther toward the West is he going to be able to sustain the kind of urban and other warfare that his soldiers are going to be subjected to if he does go in? So he can declare an initial victory, but is he going to be able to withstand the kind of opposition and very serious blood and treasure that he's going to have to take home? Well, he may not be planning on, uh, you know, basically trying to hold the territory and occupy it. Um, it may be more that, you know, they move in, they, they seize control of, you know, some significant parts of territory and use it then that for a negotiation, uh, essentially to force the Ukrainians to sue for peace. If you look at what happened in Georgia, which was more of a sort of conventional set piece, almost World War II style in, uh, incursion there, where they sent tanks down the Rocky Tunnel and through the Caucasus, into South Ossetia and then across into you know the rest of Georgia they stopped short of Tbilisi but it was you know kind of enough of a real short sharp shock there was aviation and bombing of you know key um, Georgian um, towns like Gori the birthplace of Stalin and then you know immediately the French um, in the form of uh, uh, President Sarkozy appeared to broker a peace deal. I I'm sure that uh, Putin is you know, basically betting that um, as soon as you know all fighting breaks out, all hell breaks loose, you know, there'll be a, an awful mass of rush to you know try to you know resolve something to stop this in its tracks so it's not an open-ended conflict. And that then, you know, kind of in the course of suing for peace, there'll be you know some kind of agreements. And you know, this will ultimately probably probably lead to the um, uh, removal of Zelensky. Because in the case of Georgia. It wasn't that Mikhail Saakashvili was removed right away, but it eventually was because the peace was so punitive. Uh, the, um, it was a ceasefire. It never you know, got resolved. The Russians played with the Georgians for ages and eventually Saakashvili gets voted out. And you, you can look at elsewhere around uh, the, you know, the, the rim of uh, the former Soviet states, now independent countries, where um, Russia's managed to sort of influence electoral outcomes by putting pressure on leaders or you know, get them to essentially become compliant with Russia. 
And I, and you know, look at uh, Lukashenko who had been in Belarus doing his own thing, but you know, as soon as he has an uprising against him, he has to you know basically run towards Russia. Now Russia's got uh, Lukashenko in Belarus agreeing to you know have troops uh, sent in also to put pressure on Ukraine and most likely uh, have those troops stay there and also have missiles uh, placed in Belarus. That's been a big game changer, you know, from our perspective of seeing what's been happening there. So I'm sure that he hopes that or intends to, you know, not necessarily occupy, you know, territory, but this is kind of like the things where we saw in 1956 and 1968 and in, you know, Poland, where you go and you teach them a lesson and you uh, basically see changes, political changes. And of course, he'll have studied all the mistakes that they did in the past. Uh, Putin is a, a contingency planner. I mean, the mistakes of um, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, our own mistakes of, you know, trying to essentially occupy or impose uh, a new kind of political system there, seen, same as Iraq. And, I'm, and, you know, in Syria, we also thought that they would get bogged down in a quagmire after 2015 when they went into Syria to prop up Assad, and they actually haven't. Uh, they've they've kept a relatively low footprint there. Now there isn't an Assad to prop up, but I think they're probably hoping that there will be you know some kind of move to oust Zelensky and then they will help to prop up some other leader there. But again, they may do something else. But I'm just saying that they, he does not have to be there to occupy the entire country as the as the main goal there. No, he doesn't. But I see a few differences between this situation and Georgia. In Georgia, for example, in 2008, Saakashvili fell into the trap. Absolutely, he did, yeah. Uh, Russia had all kinds of troops on the border and claimed that they were doing military exercises just as they are now. Right. Saakashvili made the mistake of firing first, and that gave Putin the excuse that he was acting defensively. One, it doesn't look like President Zelensky is going to fire first, and two, President oh, Biden... President Biden has, take, has taken military action off the table. And I think that, that is a wise move through this particular lens. But second and more important, when Putin went into Georgia, the United States and the West essentially did nothing, or we did very, very little. We had financial sanctions, but I think we would all agree they didn't really have bite. The bite, the sanctions that are now being discussed it seems to me, have some serious bite. I don't think we're going to kick him out of the SWIFT banking system. The repercussions are on us are too great. I don't think we're going to be able to persuade Germany to stop Nord Stream 2 because Germany has made that choice and they, have, they are now too dependent on Russian gas. But President Biden has floated two kinds of sanctions that I think might even deter cat like Putin. One, personal sanctions on him, which we really haven't done in the past. And two, export controls that will keep Russia from getting certain chips and semiconductors that they actually need for their avionics, their manufacturing, their maritime, maybe even their cell phones. So I wonder whether now, because the West appears, it's too early to know, but appears to be more willing to put in serious sanctions that would actually bite Putin. Maybe that's a, a deterrent. It sounds to me like you're saying that he cannot be deterred. I think he can be if everybody does it. And so, look, I've been around this block many times on sanctions, not just with Russia, but you know, my 
previous position at all of Europe under the portfolio, and we tried to put, you know, pretty major sanctions against Iran, you know, remember under the previous administration, and not also North Korea. And I can just tell you, there's all lots of ways that countries get around those sanctions, especially if this is not, you know, uh, basically across the board commitment. And Putin's already factored in uh, not just the sanctions that we, you know, as you said, pretty weak, you know, back in 2008, but also what happened in 2014 when the sanctions did bite and they did stop them in the trucks for further expansion into Ukraine. There's a very strong case for that. Uh, but that was because uh, you might recall the Europeans came on board pretty heavily after the shooting down of the MH17 Malaysian Airlines, because of course it was European citizens, Americans, Australians, you know, Malaysians. I mean, that was a huge shock for everyone, and everyone realised, you know, my, my God, look what you know kind of is happening in this context. We've got to step up here. I mean, we need to have that same kind of sentiment to step up. I presided over as um, senior director the effort to put together a response to the. Uh, poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury. And I just want to kind of tell you just how outrageous that act was there. The full um, dimensions of this are not known to everyone yet because the British are going through still an endless inquest. You might remember they take forever to do this. Remember after um, Princess Diana was killed, it took years and years and years for the inquest to have, you know, work its way through the British system. In this instance, a British woman, Dawn Sturgis, was killed by the Novichok. The, the two uh, targets um, actually survived because of intervention, but there was an awful lot of other people in Salisbury, not just the policemen that we know about, but children, all kinds of people who were also put at risk. And eventually all of this will come out. And we shared the intelligence on this. I mean, the Brits revealed all of it, you know, with a lot of our European allies. We were trying to put a really concerted response, because imagine if that had happened in any city, a small city. There was enough uh, Novichok to kill 4,000 people. And, and the vial, which was in a perfume bottle, was discarded in the donation uh, bin of a charity store. So kids could have picked it up. You know, it happened to be, you know, uh, a couple who um, found it there. And we had the hardest time getting our other European allies, particularly the French and the Germans, to come along with us on this. And this becomes part of the problem. We actually were supposed to impose sanctions because this was a violation of the Chemical Weapons Treaty. So we should have had large scale massive sanctions. So our problem is Putin knows that each time people waver when it comes to these sanctions. We tried to get um, sanctions uh, that were comprehensive across the board against the Russian oligarchs, including people who hold Putin's personal you know money for him uh, after the 2016 intervention in in our elections you know remember we targeted Malik Dada Pasca, Roussal, all kinds of oligarchs and a lot of our European counterparts balked on this because they saw this as part of our own personal spot uh, with um, uh, with Putin rather than something that was going to affect all of them so what we need to do is to show everyone that this is going to affect all of them because in, in terms of Putin's you know property. First of all, as the president of Russia, he has an awful lot of property in Russia itself that he can avail himself of. And if he stays, you know, president for life, then it doesn't really matter whether he's got something personal or not, right? But it's all the wives, mistresses, children, and all of the other hangers-on of family members and, you know, oligarchs that have places in Monaco and New York and Miami and, you know, um, Germany and Geneva and everything else. And the problem is that we don't always have the legal basis. I mean, Mary, this would be in your docket and others to figure out how to go after a lot of that. Um, you know, for Treasury and others, you know, to you can't really confiscate uh, these, but you can, you know, reveal them and you can, you know, try to sanction, you know, some of that property and their earnings. But while we also have 
people like George Osborne, former you know UK Chancellor, working for people like Oleg Deripaska. And you know, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to offend people who are on this call right now. Any of you who are doing business with major Russian oligarchs, the Russians don't take this as serious. So they basically say to us, and Putin says this to us, and I can't tell you how many Russian officials have said this to me, while all of your businesses, you know, come off and come to the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, and while all of your law firms and everybody do things, um, you know, with us, we know you're not serious. You, know, you can sanction from here until eternity, but this is just political. So they've factored in that there are ways around this. And when they're throwing millions and billions of dollars around, you know, to people who will work for them and, you know, be on their boards, they pretty much figure that we won't be able to have an impact. So no, it, this doesn't deter Putin because he knows we can all be bought. And I'm sorry if I sound rude to anybody here, but this was the pain in my butt the whole time when I was at the um, you know, Security uh, Council. And before that, the National Intelligence Council, our corruption, our ability, I'm not saying all of you know here, but people to basically be on the payrolls of Russians. I mean, he's basically courting now a whole bunch of Italian businesses. This is just an in your face, basically saying, bring it on. I don't care about your sanctions because they're not real. So, I mean, his bet will be, we won't do the things that you've just said, because although many of us in politics will have the wherewithal and the willingness to do it, people in business will not. And I'm sorry if I sound a little preachy and annoyed, but I can just tell you how difficult it is to actually do the kinds of things that people say we should do because of people out there who want to earn an awful lot of a fat, you know, kind of uh, bonus and compensation and, you know, from, from Russian entities. And that, is, and that is certainly true with respect to China right now. Fiona, I could talk to you for the rest of the night, but I'm gonna be a good soldier and give people an opportunity to ask questions. But before I do, I wanna give you a chance to tell us about your book. There is nothing for you here. Initially, this was going to be a, a meeting about her book, but in, because of events, we shifted over to uh, Russia, Ukraine. Fiona grew up, as she puts it, very poor in Northeast England in the coal mine country during the Thatcher days. Her father lost his job as a coal miner, ended up as a porter in a hospital. And Fiona has written a book about her girlhood and her journey to where she is today. And before we go to questions, Fiona, I wanna give you a moment to talk about your book. Well, yeah, thanks so much, Mary. And um, I just use the personal part of this as a thread of a book that kind of ties many of the things that we're talking about together. Uh, the book looks at um, the UK, the United States and Russia and how we've all very unfortunately converged uh, more than you know, we would have anticipated over a long period dating back to the 1980s where all of uh, the three uh, countries have gone through this massive dislocation and uh, socioeconomic upheaval as a result of you know, the collapse of, uh, of mass manufacturing industries. Of course, in the United States, this took place a lot more recently, but that the roots of the kind of populist politics that we've um, experienced here in the United States go back into that period and those big shifts. And in part, you know, the book is a bit of a warning that you know, if we're not careful, we might be heading on the same path as, uh, as Russia. I don't think that this is necessarily likely but I use Russia as the kind of the ghost of uh, Christmas future, as I call it in the book. Um, you know, the sort of apparition, the specter really of, of, of what we might become if we're, if we're not very careful. And the main message of the book is that our own domestic problems, 
the dislocations uh, from uh, you know, economic change over a long period of time. We're about to do that again as we move with, into more artificial intelligence, the green economy, for example. You know, the big debates in Congress right now are indeed about you know, maintaining the coal industry and the steel industry. Obviously, you know, um, industries are going to have to change as we have to deal with climate change and new technologies, the nature of work um, all changing that this means, you know, we're in these periods of dislocation economically that lead to political outcomes. And in 2016, you know, a number of things happened that brought all three countries together. We had Brexit in the UK, where people from my hometown in the north of England voted for Brexit, and then later voted for the Tories for the first time in um, 100 years. And since the constituencies, you know, it was just like in the United States, the breaking of the, the Blue Wall, that was called the Red Wall up in um, the north of England. We had the election of uh, Trump in 2016 in a really vitriolic campaign that then the Russians interfered in. And Putin interfered because he saw that he could push the United States buttons and he understood that uh, basically the United States was going through the same kind of upheavals as Russia did in the 1990s. Putin's the first real populist leader of a major country. He comes into power, as I said, 21, 22 years ago, right at the, uh, um, at the turn of the millennium promising to make Russia great again. We're seeing you know, what just right that means today. And it was basically also feeding on those reactions, the grievances of people in old industrial cities, which form his base, who'd seen Russia uh, lose its position in the world and also seen their livelihoods disappear. And the book you know, basically makes the point that I recently made in um, a piece in Foreign Affairs, that for us to be able to sort of deal with Russia effectively, we've got to clean up our own act. Our polarization, our partisan divisions, the massive inequality that um, uh, America is experiencing today, the cultural and identity, identity um, struggles, these are all things that make us weak and vulnerable. They were what the um, Russians exploited in 2016. And really for President Biden and anybody else who's coming into uh, the presidency in the United States to be able to push back on Russia, we have to make ourselves more resilient. We need collective action. And, and again, to something I said earlier, the biggest problem that Biden has right now is really um, you know, the inability to put on a united front at home, not just abroad with allies, when he's counter, countering Putin. And again, this would be any president, no matter what their parties are or you know, political affiliation, because Putin is essentially a unitary actor. Yes, he has constraints. Yes, there are pressures on him, but he doesn't have a free press down, breathing down his neck all the time. He's not even a member of a political party. All of his opposition has been marginalized or is in jail like Alexei Navalny. And he has a presidency that, that you know, kind of basically stands alone with no checks and balances on it. And so he has you know, an unbridled uh, ability uh, to really kind of move forward. Uh, the only pushback is really you know, how we and everyone else react, but much more of a free handed home than any US uh, president have under current circumstances. Thank you, Dr. Fiona Hill and Patricia. Back to you. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both. That was excellent. And um, I also urge you to read the book. I read it. Um, it's terrific. It's very readable. It's actually charming because she goes back to um, her 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 old uh, town in in England and manages to make all this economic conversation, uh, not only enlightening, but really um, interesting and, and a terrific read. So please, I hope you'll, um, hope you'll get her book. There's nothing for you here. 
But we do have a number of questions on the floor and I wanted to um, see if we could start with um, a uh, person who's on our honorary advisory board and, and, and we have a great admiration for him, David Crum. Do you wanna get going, David? Sure, I, um, I will be very brief. Uh, Fiona, what, thank you for this brilliant presentation and for your honorable and courageous service to the country. Um, Tell us a little bit about the internal politics that Putin faces. Even authoritarians face domestic political constraints, if not from the general public, then from elite groups. Um, how wrong can this war go for him before he is in trouble? He is in trouble at home. Yeah, you know, it's a really good uh, point about this, David. I mean, we all wonder, you know, if, if the Ukrainians really fight back, if there is indeed this insurgency that goes on for a long time. You know, if uh, the Russians get bogged down, I mean, some of the ideas that Mary was, you know, putting out there, that could become, you know, fairly costly. It doesn't look as if um, the Russian public are particularly interested in the war, uh, you know, between Russia and Ukraine. However, right now they see that the whole um, uh, framing of uh, of this conflict or a potential conflict is because of the aggression of the United States and NATO. That's what shows up in um, Russian polling. But there's a there's a dissonance, a disconnect there, because the majority of Russians don't want to see you know any kind of conflict with Ukraine, but they think that if there is going to be one, it'll be all the fault of the United States and NATO. So if uh, Putin loses you know the grip of the narrative, I mean that's why one of the reasons I think we should move it out there and have others you know in the world you know complaining about this and pushing back, it does become you know a little bit more difficult to keep control of all of this. You've rightly you know put um, your finger on the fact that you know he, he he may be you know as I'm describing something of a unitary actor, but he's got other constituencies around him that he has to take into consideration. And you know one key telling moment was really back in 2020 when he made amendments to the Russian constitution to enable himself to theoretically, in principle, stay in power out till 2036, by which time, you know, the man will be 84 years old. And, you know, why did he do that? Because he was technically, and still is, up for re-election um, in two years, in 2024, same time as, you know, roughly as the US presidential election, the same year. And I think that was then because he was worried about being a lame duck. I mean, just like here, you know, we get two years and then everybody's off to the races thinking about, you know, the next presidential election. And in Russia, you know, as he's the um, the only leader and he's already done this switch with Dmitry Medvedev back in the past, he couldn't really do that again. He obviously didn't think Dmitry Medvedev had uh, done the right job and he comes back in again and they've extended out the presidential terms. He seemed to have not really made up his mind about how he was going to handle this next transition. 2024 is kind of a, a little bit of a weird anniversary again I mentioned before that Putin's got a bit this sense of history going on it's the anniversary of the death of Lenin and you know we'll remember that Lenin was shot at one point that's not why he died but he died of a stroke he was incapacitated a bit like Stalin uh you know it wasn't the kind of it was a bit of an ignominious and it kind of created a succession crisis and you know so there's a lot of concerns that Putin will die in office something will happen to him there'll be a succession crisis he wants to do what Yeltsin did which is choose his own successor but he doesn't want to make the choice too early in case, you know, people are maneuvering around him and might want to replace him. And so he's got to balance all of this off. But the bottom line is he can never afford to lose face and he can't afford to show any weakness. 
And that's how this could, you know, play badly. Because everyone's asking about an off-ramp for Putin at the moment, but it only has to be an off-ramp so he can show success and say, for example, look, these guys would never have negotiated with me had I not done this, we'd have never got this, that, and the other, you know, had I not done this. And he's got to be able to kind of use this to affect the next transition for him of 2024, uh, which is either cementing him in office or, you know, creating some kind of sequencing for eventually, you know, kind of relinquishing the presidency. And I think if you look around the, um, the region, that looks a bit risky as well. Look what just happened in Kazakhstan. Nazarbayev had done this and was supposedly the supreme leader, you know, sitting there in the wings. And then Tokayev, his handpicked successor, uh, ends up in um, some trouble with massive protests. And the next thing that looks like a palace coup going on with Nazarbayev and his family being pushed to one side. Putin can't like that idea very much. He wants to be Li Kuan Yew or Deng Xiaoping, but you know the system in Russia isn't that stable. So I, I, I do think, David, you know, you're right to look at this, that you know, this, could, this could get out of hand here. And it could be that people around him start saying, you know, Vladimir Vladimirovich, you know, I haven't quite got the grip that you have. So he has to be extremely careful. Uh, I think that's why he often just makes one move at a time. He doesn't reveal his hand because he's also got to think about everybody else watching very closely to see if he's still got his grip, if he's still got, you know, kind of what it takes. He's going to be 70 in October. Okay, that's pretty young, but you know, it's kind of um, in, in Russian actuary tables, not so much, you know, we've got an awful lot of people who, you know, we remember the gerontocracy of the, of the Soviet period, but an awful lot of people, you know, around him, are, are we know not well, there's a lot of speculation about, you know, him as well. He has to be hail hearty and in complete control of everything to still, you know, be where he is. And, and so I think there's a lot of wild cards there. There's a lot of ways this could, you know, potentially go wrong. Yeah. Um, thank you, David. And next, we've got we've got a lot of questions today. Susan Milligan from uh, U.S. News. Hi, Dr. Hill. Thank you. Um, first of all, I deeply admire the commitment to the Christmas tree behind you. It's yes, it's, bringing, <laughs> it's bringing me a lot of cheer. Secondly, I'm buying your book as soon as we finish with this event. I'm dying to read it. So, um, but I wanted to ask you what how you think this plays out for President Biden. I mean, on the one hand, nobody welcomes an international crisis and potential war. On the other hand, this is an opportunity for him to show his foreign policy credentials. Obviously, he was chairman of foreign relations when Putin uh, was on the rise. Um, and, you know, he doesn't need to bring Manchin and Cinnamon into the White House to work this out. Is this, what are the potential pitfalls and, um, and opportunities for him here? Yeah, look, you've, you've said it there. There is an opportunity um, for uh, President Biden uh, to show what he's made of on the foreign policy front. He said vice president, uh, Senate foreign relations, now president. He knows his stuff inside out. And, and in fact, you know, I, I think in um, a weird way that Putin recognizes that and actually thinks that Biden is the guy that he could actually work this out with. Um, I'll just, you know, say from experience under the previous administration, the lack of knowledge about history drove Putin nuts. Even though he could actually um, use that to his advantage, particularly when it came from Ukraine and, you know, kind of weave that history, you know, kind of on his version of it and you know, make it clear that Ukraine was part of Russia. They all speak Russian. So, you know, why they're not part of, you know, Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at other times, it was deeply frustrating. You know, uh, lack of knowledge about geography, lack of knowledge about the history of, you know, the kind of the Cold War after World War Two. Biden knows all of this. Putin doesn't have to explain himself or anything else to Biden. He's met Biden before. You know, they, they know each other. You know, you notice also uh, that um, Putin's become a bit more verbally respectful about Biden. He was making 
comments before about his age, but of course, you know, maybe he also realized that um, by the time he gets to 2036, if that's where he's heading, he's going to be even older. So he might need to dial that back. He's now talking about um, the wisdom of older statesmen. And, um, you know, basically, there is a way in which this could be set up to have a meaningful negotiation that uh, comes out on, you know, something you know, on a, I hate to say positive, but let's just say just like a slightly better front than we, um, you know, um, think is, high, is likely right now. I think the real key, though, for President Biden is bringing everyone else along. And then this is going to be a test of Biden's ability to reach out to um, uh, NATO allies. And of course, he is somebody who's been steeped in the transatlantic alliance, knows it intimately inside out. For all the criticisms that he's got about Nord Stream 2 and Germany, that was obviously a gambit to try to bring the Germans over. I mean, I think, you know, as we've we've worried that the Germans are not going to step up on Nord Stream 2, which is obviously what he was hoping. That will be, you know, something of a blow to him, particularly when you have uh, Ted Cruz breathing down your neck and others. I mean, it's not just, you know, there's many um, people who thought that um, something more should have been done. You know, when I was in the government, we were trying to slow it down. I mean, the United States has been opposed to pipelines from Russia since the Cold War period, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, and Nord Stream 1 as well. Uh, and we haven't had much success in pushing forward on that. So that is always going to be a problem. But he's, he's got to bring not just the NATO allies along, but other uh, European allies. You've got all these fights between uh, Britain and France right now. Can he help, you know, force them to patch this up and, you know, get focused? And also you do need broader swear that the international community you need to be able to push back on what russia is doing this op-ed that i wrote you know kind of earlier in the week was really trying to say you know how do we take this to the un how do we articulate this in some way that flips the tables on putin trying to make it all about us all about the us and uh, us aggression and this is all just an issue for russia um i think biden's saying all the right things about this being a huge challenge to the international system but he's got to try to get other partners, allies, and, you know, countries that don't normally uh, perhaps, you know, stand side by side with the United States to speak out about this. I mean, basically, Russia is behaving like an old colonial power. You, you might, you should be able to, you know, articulate this. Admittedly, you know, people find it hard to think about colonial power because, you know, you think about that as Britain, uh, you know, kind of colonizing India or something like this. Russia expanded out and sort of colonized the, you know, the territory around it. It's an old, um, you know, imperial power that's having an extraordinarily hard time accepting that, you know, the, the, the colonies that have gone. You know, the United States stood up to Britain and France in 1956 over Suez when they kind of stopped thinking that they still divided up, you know, the Middle East between them. You know, the United States should be saying that it has a history of standing up um, against this, not, you know, withstanding some of the things we've done ourselves. <laughs> But that should not excuse Russia for thinking it can predate upon Ukraine as some kind of vengeance against us or anything else and call out what Russia is doing and get others, you know, to help reframe this as well. And I think that's, you know, the challenge for Biden. And they've got to find a way, you know, of articulating it that makes it not just about the US and Russia um, or just about, you know, Ukraine and Russia, but about this larger set of principles that Russia will be threatening. I mean, if Russia invades Ukraine or, you know, uh, tips Ukraine over, this is all bets are off on the future of the international system in my view. That's a pretty scary thought. So <laughs> Thank you for that. But that is a scary thought. Um, but it reminds me of the um, Brett Stevens article today saying that uh, the op-ed piece that he did suggesting that we should go back to the terminology of 
the free world, that we do need this bigger uh, message, this bigger construct, and that would give moral force to what we want to do and how we want to hold back Russia. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I don't know about the terminology so much. Um, I mean, I think that resonates a bit. Um, you know, sounds a bit hollow at times. Yeah, but, and I, but I do think, you know, reaching out in that same way and saying, you know, however you, you phrase it, basically the same principles, absolutely. Uh, because, you know, other countries should be looking at this, you know, India, you know, for example, Japan, I know the Japanese, you know, are kind of worried about this in the same way we are. Uh, all countries around the world who've had their freedom and independence, I mean, that might be one way of talking about it, right, since the end of World War One, end of World War Two, or the end of the Cold War, they're all threatened by this action. And again, Russia is an old empire, which is behaving in um, a pretty aggressive way against one of its old colonies. And, you know, we, the United Kingdom, uh, thinking about, you know, the position with Northern Ireland, what if the UK suddenly decided not just that it was going to, you know, rupture um, the, the Northern Ireland agreement that it made with the EU, but take back Ireland? How would the United States, you know, respond? How would other countries think about that? You know, what if Britain had decided to, 30 years after the independence of India in 1947, you know, try to take India back? I mean, of course, that sounds a bit preposterous, but, you know, just start to play this out about, you know, it, it's not just about China and Taiwan, because technically, you know, we haven't recognized the, you know, the full-fledged independence of Taiwan, even though we obviously see it as separate from China. But we have all recognized Ukraine and many other countries like Ukraine as independent and sovereign uh, for the last 30 years. Well, that makes it absolutely clear. Um, let's go. We've got a lot of questions here. I want to go to Yurachi Kazika. She's uh, also, a, a, in this case, the lapsed person of the press, but also Lithuanian. Yurachi? Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hill. This is excellent. Of course, as a Lithuanian, I have to point out that <laughs> it was the first Soviet Republic to break away and therefore uh, cause the collapse of the Soviet Union or dissolution. So, uh, Dr. Hill, if uh, indeed this does happen, do you foresee a buildup of NATO forces in places like the Baltics? I think, look, it's already happening, right? I mean, in terms of uh, the government, the United States government and other NATO allies have um, already announced that they have troops on standby. We'd already done forward deployments uh, on a rotational basis, as you're well aware, to the Baltic states and um, uh, to Poland. Um, and, you know, if Russia's basically saying, well, this is a violation of agreements that were made, you know, at some point in the 1990s, well, Russia's violating many uh, multiple agreements on recognizing uh, Ukraine's uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity. They've already violated an agreement in 1994 uh, guaranteeing uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity when they in invaded and annexed uh, Crimea. I mean, you also mentioned, you know, kind of the Baltic states, the Soviet Republic. Remember, we never recognized that because the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia were forcibly incorporated into the Soviet Union, having had independence after the collapse of the Russian Empire. And uh, basically it was, you know, through the acts of Stalin and the Soviet military, there are invasions of the Baltic states and forcible in incorporation. We never recognized that. And I think, you know, at some point, the Russians kind of conceded that was the case when the Baltic states um, joined NATO and then the European Union. But obviously, you know, at this particular point, what Putin is wanting to um, ensure is that no other former Soviet Republic um, 
be Ukraine, Georgia, or any other, has any choice of joining NATO or the European Union at all, or freely uh, choosing an alliance um, uh, of, of, their, of their own free will, which again is in violation of the Helsinki Final Act, you know, the, which the Soviet Union signed and which Russia um, basically took up again in, um, uh, after uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which of course has, um, has shaped uh, the European space since the 1970s. So I think absolutely in response to that, we would see more uh, deployments and more efforts to shore up the security of the Baltic states and Poland, which would be you know, very different. The dynamic in the Europe would be so much more different uh, than, it, than it is now. And again, this will have reverberations internationally because no one thought or conceived of the fact that we'd be back to a massive confrontation in Europe just a few years ago, although you know, we should have been concerned about it given you know, what Russia had done. But this would really make a lot of difficulties for countries outside of Europe as well, you know, like you know, say India or you know, Pakistan or Japan and others who you know, have a vested interest in having you know, non-confrontational relations among Russia, China and the United States, for example, a lot of other countries' security is going to be affected by a full-blown you know, confrontation in Europe you know, with Russia invading another state. Hey, we've got so many questions here. I hope we were, and I know we've already going beyond our, our 5.45 to six o'clock, but let's go um, to, and we'll try to make the questions short. You've actually been great about that, but um, Reed Harris and then um, Gillian Sorensen. Reed, see if he's still there. Okay, let's go to um, Gillian. Well, thank you. And Gillian, excuse me. No, Gillian, that's right. Um, Dr. Hill, this was absolutely fascinating presentation. Um, first of all, it, it does strike me that Putin would surely know that if he went to war, full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine, that that would be a catastrophe for Russia. Does he even care about that? Does he even take note of how many lives would be lost if he did that? And separately from that, um, if Putin wants a guarantee that NATO will not expand eastward, isn't that where we want to be? And couldn't Stoltenberg make that clear? And couldn't the US working with and through NATO be in a much stronger position than we are trying to make this a US-Russia debate? Well, I mean, I'll take that last one first, um, because, you know, I think we have been, you know, signaling to Russia for some time that another enlargement of NATO wasn't really on the cards and that Ukraine and Georgia were not likely to be um, you know, members anytime soon. I mean, I think the big mistake was made in 2008 at the Bucharest summit, where, you know, it was quite obvious that there would be all kinds of repercussions. And, you know, we ended up in a sort of a compromise formula rather than, you know, thinking all the way, um, uh, things all the way through. And, um, you know, I could talk a little bit, you know, more about this, but let me just, you know, leave that bit there. But we can't really do this under such duress and under such pressure. I mean, I think that this is, you know, kind of part of the problem of you've kind of he's created a frame where there's no way that NATO can actually do that under these certain circumstances. And, and again, another point to make is it's not just about Ukraine. Sweden and Finland want to keep that open door to NATO for their own purposes. And there are other countries like, for example, Norway, uh, which was for the entire period of the Cold War, the only NATO country with a direct border with Russia. 
Um, of course, Turkey had a border with the Soviet Union, but that was with the Caucasus uh, countries of Georgia and um, Armenia. But it's only Norway um, that had that direct border. And the Norwegians don't want the door closed to others either. The Norwegians don't actually have US troops uh, deployed there. They have got you know, their own security. They've always had a very you know, delicate balance, but they don't want to preclude Sweden and Finland, their immediate neighbours, for having a chance uh, to go into uh, NATO. So there's a lot of moving parts there. Uh, but I mean, obviously, we should be having a discussion with Russia. We've been trying to have it all along, but we, you know, we keep on changing administrations and things go in different directions about how we deal with conventional forces, force deposition, or deposition rather, or disposition, I think that's the word I'm looking for here. Um, the um, uh, basing, missiles, con you know, conventional and nuclear forces. Uh, there's a lot of an unfinished agenda there, but um, you know, this kind of um, environment isn't the best for having those discussions. You know, with the frame of um, strategic stability is obviously out the window when you're looking at an imminent Russian invasion. And that gets to your first question, because Putin doesn't think like we do. He doesn't necessarily think it was a catastrophe. If he says the you know the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union, it might be worth it. And who's going to die? Lots of Ukrainians. I mean, yes, Russian uh, military forces, but you know, he's probably factored all of that in. I mean, that we've seen the Russians do you know some you know fairly you know I would say calculated uh, things in their conscription and the way that they um, move forces around. They're trying to make sure that you wouldn't have casualties that would be all from one village or town. That's happened in the past, and there's been a massive backlash. You'd have, you know, casualties from, you know, units that are scattered all the way around the country. So you couldn't have the soldiers' mothers' organisation organised as they did in Chechnya. In fact, they try to get rid of them and memorial, memorial the uh, Russian organisation that would have looked at these kinds of things. Putin's already shored up the home front. He's got the blame on us and he's, you know, basically there's already been a massive amount of, uh, you know, Russian combat deaths. A lot of them are the paramilitary forces, uh, but, you know, they're, uh, they're contractors and they you know, their families get compensation. Uh, he he's carefully calculating all of this. And honestly, he does not care if lots of Ukrainians die. He really doesn't. And this is a kind of a problem. Think about Chechnya when Putin came into power at the very you know, beginning of his presidency. He presided over what was the mass slaughter of people, the bombing of Grozny, you know, the major um, city in Chechnya. Those were Russians. Uh, most of the people who died in uh, Grozny were ethnic Russians, not just Chechens, old ladies in basements of apartment buildings. I've watched all of that. And I'm afraid that he doesn't think in the same you know, way that we do. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, this man is, you know, not calculating these kind of human costs, but um, those for him, those are sacrifices worth making if you've got a larger goal there. So we can't impose, you know, on uh, Putin our own, you know, worries and fears about body bags and, you know, kind of loss of life. It's not in the papers um, in, in Russia in the same way that it is here. I mean, it's, he, he's, not, he's operating under a different set of calculations than we are. And that's what makes this so dangerous and difficult to deal with. Well, I hate to say that- He also that... figures, by the way, that refugees will go from Ukraine into Europe, that there'll be mass refugees into Lithuania and Poland and you know, all the other places, which will cause more destabilization. Slovakia, you know, for example. This has been an incredible conversation. I uh, can't thank you enough, Fiona. And Mary, I mean, you just sparked an unbelievable conversation with, with uh, Fiona Hill. Thank you both so much. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all the questions. We probably have a, 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 almost a dozen more. 
Um, but Mary just uh, made a comment at the end. Mary, you want to just make your point? Oh, I just noted, Putin says that the biggest catastrophe of the 20th century was the fall of the Soviet Union. But if the Soviet Union hadn't fallen, he would never have been the president of Russia. Of course he wouldn't have, yes, exactly. He was a major beneficiary. Absolutely. I mean, we should all point that out to him. I mean, I thought about that many times, too. There is no way that some, you know, middling KGB agent who'd spend a lot of time in Dresden would have ended up as president of the Soviet Union. No way. No way. Ter terrific. Both of you. I mean, really an excellent conversation. I wish we could go on for but we could make a course out of this. It's been amazing. Mary, thank you so much for doing this. You were wonderful, as I absolutely expected. And Fiona, we are so proud to have honored you, and you are just brilliant. So it was I just um, recommend the book, please buy. Um, there's nothing for you here. You, I think you'll really enjoy it. And of course, Fiona, we're going to look forward to all of your appearances. Um, and I guess you've got another book on the uh, coming, at some point. Well, um, people are uh, suggesting I should be, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a little pause for a moment, actually. <laughs> I, I've been, been getting pushed to do yet another edition of Mr. Putin, you know, the book that, you know, I did back in yes, 2015. Yes. Mr. Putin operative in the Kremlin. But, you know, I've already done two editions of that. And I'm like, he's not finished yet, is he? Can I wait until he stops? <laughs> but <laughs> my apologies to everyone who wanted to ask a question tonight. I'm sorry. You had a lot of, uh, of folks who, are, who uh, uh, wanted to to. to to uh, express something to you. But thank you, Mary. Thank you, Fiona Hill. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Um, next week, we've got Kati Martin and Ambassador John Emerson on Germany, which uh, certainly has played a role in this um, uh, situation. Um, and then we'll be doing with Byron Ween, Joe Zeidel, and Anthony Scaramucci. We're going to be talking about um, a forecast for 2022. So that'll be interesting. And um, it's always a little fun, especially I think this time with um, Scaramucci. And we'll have in person um, Homa Abedin, members only, and but uh, folks by Zoom also available on in March. We're going to be doing Biden's first year with David Gergen, Tara Setmeyer, Ronald Brownstein, and a couple of others. And um, then we'll be doing John Delavolpe and talking about Generation Z and what they are trying to do politically. But thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I hope we'll see you next week. Bye.